All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the uh, next installment of the, let's say, the second chapter of our series on Shemitah. We're finishing, I think, what I would call the theoretical portions of uh, learning about the sabbatical year, um, what the system is supposed to be accomplishing, the, the ideal program established by God in terms of a control check, like an intervention into the normal state of affairs. Shemitah right, intervenes in uh, economic activity, both when it comes to agriculture and when it comes to credit, right, the lending of money. Um, all agricultural work ceases, you know, even the land is allowed to rest, which, which kind of, uh, you know, breaks down this uh, use-based relationship we have with the earth, and we are forced to recognize that it has its own rights, it has its own agency. Um, and also, um, the system of credit breaks down, too, in which all debts are forgiven, um, which then also, I think, helps to create a certain kind of uh, equi uh, equalization, which we talked about in the last couple few weeks. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Jubilee year, the Yovel, which is the, let's say, Shemitah squared, right? It is, because as we'll see, it's seven times seven plus one, right? It's, it's one more than Shemitah unto itself, right? It is the culmination, the climax of this ideal utopian uh, system that God is propounding in, uh, in, in, in the Torah. Um, and, and with this, we're going to really kind of bring to a close with this vision of the ideal that erupts within the real, you know, at these regular periods. It's what it's supposed to mean and what it's supposed to do to us. But as we, I think, uh, the historically minded amongst us know, but also if you've read uh, the Mishnah Torah, Rambam acknowledges this as well, you know, Shemitah and Yovel don't really get a chance to really be practiced so much because, uh, you know, we lose sovereignty and we lose autonomy in the land, so we don't have a chance to practice them. Uh, but besides that, um, when we pick it up again after Purim, when we go, I think, to the final sections of this mini-series or maxi-series, on Shemitah, we're going to actually look at the when the ideal meets the real. We're going to look at the ways in which Shemitah has been practiced in the real world. First, we're going to look at what's called um, the prosbul and heter iska, right? The the way in which the rabbis managed to keep the economic and credit-based system going, um, and whether it was able to in some way still smuggle in the ideal. Um, and then lastly, I think as the kind of the final thing, we're going to look at the way in which Shemitah itself was practiced, you know, when the uh, Jewish settlement was established in the land of Palestine, and we'll look at the, um, the heter uh, mechira, right, the allowance that Rav Cook and other rabbis made in terms of what it means to have some kind of agricultural activity, acknowledging kind of the distance between what exists in the real world and the vision we have of the ideal. But still, I think we're going to see the ways in which halacha provides certain means of negotiation and kind of see the way in which halacha functions as this system that tries to hold two things at the same time, this vision of the way the world should be or could be, but at the same time to hold that within the world as it is and how those two things can be in dialogue with each other. And we'll see if maybe that's even like a productive model to talk about other aspects of halacha, the ways in which we can kind of hold this parallax view, right, of both the world as it could be and the world as it is. So back to uh, tonight's topic, though. Tonight we'll be talking about the Yovel, the 50th year of the... 49th year cycle, right? It's, um, I don't know if you ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is a sop to my fellow nerds. Uh, but the, as the books progressed in the series, it, it was called The Increasingly Inaccurate Hitchhiker's Trilogy, because there were five books in the series. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the original plan was there to be three, and then he just couldn't stop writing them. So similarly, maybe, Lahab deal. Uh, you know, the God set out a system of seven, which, as we talked about, is the is the com number of completion. It's the number of the natural order. <laughs> uh, no, except for, yes, yeah, 42 for Douglas Adams, but 49 for us. So we have uh, seven, right, which is the number of the natural order, number of completion. And then we have, you know, actually, we I think we mentioned this before, Brit Mila, right? Circumcision is on which day of the, of a child's life? The eighth. The eighth day, right? Which is seven plus one. Because it too is an intervention into the natural, right? Whereas the Greeks, the Hellenists, idealized, divinized the natural order and the human body. We have, uh, we don't have that kind of, you know, to divinize the human body, as we know, uh, is idolatry, right? So the eighth day indicates a, a, a distance of sorts or a kind of a critical relationship with this divinization of, of nature. Um, similarly, Yovel, right, is seven times seven, right, which is 49. And Ramam's very clear about this because it's not clear from the Pasuk. It's specifically, it's the 50th year. So it's one plus, you know, back to uh, humorous um, British or Commonwealth authors in genre fiction. Terry Pratchett in his Discworld series says actually that the, uh, the color of magic um, is octarine, which is the eighth color of the uh, of the seven color spectrum. Uh, yeah, Renee. Um, so does that mean that the Yovel, the Jubilee Yovel, right? Mm -hmm. Is it? Yeah. Yovel. Does that mean it's some kind of um, like some kind of covenant happens? Ah, yeah. Keep years? that language of covenant. We're gonna go back to that. Okay, so I'll but in a very kind of in a very kind of surprising way. Uh, but okay. you're saying like light Brit Mila is Yovel, or like the Shemitah Yovel industrial complex or anti-industrial complex, uh, is that like some kind of covenant? Uh, and the answer is, the, you know, this, yes. the, the answer might surprise you. You know, doctors don't okay. want to know this, right? Like it's uh, you know, it's very very exciting. So okay. I can't believe you took away my you took away my surprise. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the thrust what? of this. No, I didn't you, mean you, to. you intuited quite well, and we'll see. Actually, we'll get there. Although I think maybe in a way that maybe you weren't expecting. Um, so, without further ado, let's jump into the sources. I really uh, let this get away from me. Um, it is so long, uh, but we're not going to do everything inside. Don't worry, and I'll give you the link for the source sheet later. Um, okay, so let's look at just the kernel text of Yovel, right? So we're going to basically stay largely within uh, Bihar, right? Vayikra chapter 25. Which gives us, you know, like we see Shemitah pops up in a few places as we studied before, but Yovel really kind of is, is here. This is the kernel for Yovel. So let's look at this. So who wants to read in the English? Lauren. Okay, I'll read. Okay, Renee. Oh, it's Lauren? No, Renee. Okay, just a minute. I gotta take my glasses. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. Right, so, so Shabbat. Originally, as we see this, right, every day of the week after Shacharis, we say a special psalm for the day. We say, Hayom Yom Rishon Bishabbat, Hayom Yom Sheni Bishabbat. And it's like a sweet midrash to say, ah, every day actually like is partaking of the, of the spirit of Shabbos. But, you know, the shot of it is that Shabbat means week, right? So Sheva Shabbatot Shanot, Shanim, right? Seven Shabbases of years, i.e. seven groups of seven of years. 
Okay, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you literally actually the Hebrew says times, like we say, like in multiplication, it's like seven times seven. Pa'amim literally means times, like instances of. I just think that's cool. Then you shall sound the horn loud. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, the day of atonement, so that's young people are, right? Mm -hmm. you, sh you shall have the horn sounded throughout your land. Okay, so what's the, already we have implicit relationships tied. Remember, Shemitah, we saw the language of Shemitah really points to it being like Shabbos, right? That's what we talked about last week. What is the Torah tying Yovel to? Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur, right? Literally, the shofar is sounded on Yom Kippur, right? Think of the end of Yom Kippur, the catharsis, the release, you know, of sounding the shofar, right? Next year in Jerusalem. Right? Um, so something about Yom Kippur thematically is related to Yovel too. Not just, it's not just a coincidence of date, right? Something Yom Kippur-y is happening in the Jubilee. Um, Yom Kippur also okay. associated with the number 50 in Kabbalah, especially too. But also it's 50 days after the beginning of, um, no, never mind. Okay. Shall I continue? Yeah, please. Okay. So you shall have the horn sounded throughout your land and you shall hallow the 50th year. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to your holding, and each of you shall return to your family. Okay, so who is that Pusuk addressed to? It's to Am Yisrael when they're living in Eretz Yisrael. Okay, good. So what? There's a, right, we're going to look at the different meanings of the word Yovel soon. But we have two words that are used here. It's very important. Right? Proclaim, we're going to leave this word untranslated, Dror. Right? Like, Dror Yikra Levenu Levat. Right? Like in the Shabbos song. Right? We can translate. Proclaim liberation throughout the land. Okay? I'm going to call this liberation and jubilation. Name of the class. Proclaim liberation throughout the land. Okay, for all of its inherit inhabitants, Yovel he, it's a jubilee, will be for you. And you will return, each person will return to their holding and each person to their family. So we have two different aspects of it here, right? Now, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, God apportioned the part, you know, sections of the land, portions of the land to the different tribes. Each clan had its own holding in Eretz Israel, But, you know, as we know from Shemitah, life goes on, right? You buy land, you sell land, you work land, you lose land, right? You move. So at Jubilee, the original apportioning returns. People are able to go back to, or people are supposed to, go back to where their clan, right, their family, originally was given a holding in Eretz Israel. That's El Achuzato. But then if that's the case, what's V'ish El Mishpachto? 
each person to their family. So Jubilee is like Shemitah on steroids, okay? It's not just, we're going to see, you know, in the next passage, it's going to say, just like Shemitah, you also don't work the land, which means you actually have two years of not working the land, which is actually pretty, like, again, a very utopian ideal, right? It's a very high order. But it's like Shemitah on steroids. Shemitah, you don't work the land. Jubilee, you don't even own the land. It goes back to where it, it, you recognize you're leasing it from God. You have a renewable 50-year lease, and God releases it to you, right? A release throughout the land, right? But you are re-let the land, like on a lease, every 50 years. Okay. That, again, it detaches us from a notion of ownership over the land because we don't own it. No business dealings we do with the land are ever permanent. Jubilee is like the, it is both something that is equated with forever, but on the other hand, it also undercuts anything ever being permanent. That's the dynamic, that's the dialectic we're going to be playing with. We're going to see that the word olam, forever, means until jubilee. Okay, so that's one thing. So that stopping agricultural production is an aspect of Shemitah. The corollary for that in Yovel is that all land holdings are returned to their original recipients. The other aspect of Shemitah is that all debts are forgiven, right? So what's the intensified version of that for Jubilee? What's the most in, what's the most intense right version of being in debt in ancient economy? You would be a slave. Exactly. When you don't have any, when you're not able to get any more money from people, let's say your credit score is bottomed out, zeroed out, no one's going to lend you any money anymore. What's the last thing you have, in a sense, that you can use as collateral? Yourself, your body, your work. Exactly. And on Jubilee, even that indebtedness is abolished. Well, we're going we're gonna to have a whole excursus about freeing the slaves in the second half of the source sheet. So we're just going to leave it kind of in more generic theoretical terms here. That when even the the you know the last it's the last resort, right? This is the last resort you have. You've sold yourself because you are you're you're in real deep financial straits, right? And you put yourself under a seven-year contract with a with a with a with a landholder with a with a master. You haven't made money back yet, though. At the end of seven years, you actually decide to re-up, and you get the thing, right? And you get you know, nailed to the doorpost, and it says we're going to look at this later, but it says you're supposed to that you have you know you've sold yourself in perpetuity. But at Jubilee, you're freed. Okay, so that's what that's what I want to kind of make very clear is that the um, Yovel is structurally similar to Shemitah, but taken even farther. Shemitah interrupts the utilitarian relationship we have with the land by, by making us stop using the earth as a tool. And it forces us to recognize that we are equals in that relationship mediated by God. 
and that human credit and debt relationships are also ceased to show us actually that we can we have to stop objectifying and using others towards our own end with jubilee the notion that you can even possess the land is exploded because all land contracts are shown to be renewable leases established by god not by humans we never get to dominate the land in truth it's not even yours and then secondly not secondly also that the most basic and i don't mean like simple i mean the most like primordial relationship of human resources right of which you are using a human being for labor is shown to also not be something that you can ever um, rely on fully because that too is only again a renewable lease no one can own the earth and no one can own the body um okay does that does that make sense this parallel that i'm drawing between shemitah and yovel okay shemitah is seven yovel is 50 right in the sense that shemitah yovel is shemitah squared and then even more so okay so we're gonna look at this kind of this this we're gonna look at these two key terms drawer and yovel as a way of digging into what is the nature of Jubilee, like, you know, what gives it its distinct identity. So Rashi says, Ukratem dror, proclaim liberation for the servants, for the slaves. Bein nirza ben shelo chalulo nimkar. This is in two cases, right? In terms of Hebrew slaves. One case, is that if you are in the middle of your seven-year term and jubilee comes you are freed and then sec and then also even if you have again sold yourself in perpetuity you have you know been mezuzahed on the door jam then even so you are freed at jubilee rabbi yehuda asks what is the meaning of this term drawer liberty liberation this is very interesting. He digs into the etym you know, a proposed etymology of the word. Kimidayar bay daira, like somebody living in a residency. Like a daira, like an apartment, a flat. Right? Like dira in modern Hebrew. Shedar bechol makom achirim. You're a vagabond, right? That you can live when wherever you want. And you're not determined by other people's authority, other people's control. Okay? Like it's somebody who's, you know, like somebody who takes a year, like somebody who takes a year off, you know, and is just like crashing in Airbnbs or whatever. Right? The opposite model, you know, what are you freed from? Well, when you have sold yourself into slavery, you don't get to you don't get to control where you live. You don't get to control your you don't get to determine your schedule. But what does it mean to be liberated? What does it mean to be freed? It means that you are, you have bodily autonomy again. You decide where you go to sleep. You decide when you go to sleep. Your parents can't tell you to go to sleep anymore. You, get to, you can stay up all night eating, uh, eating ice cream, whatever, 
right? You get to go, you know, like take a week off and go to Belize. I mean, again, like part of actually, you know, on one hand, the word Avadim, I think we do have to reckon with the ancient reality of slavery. Like it's not something we should like ignore or elide. But on the other hand, I also really do think that the word Avadim, like the word Avodah, it is not, you know, just like we talk, you know, let's say polemicists will talk about wage slavery today, right? There is some structural, there are some structural similarities in terms of what it means to have a job. You know, there's interesting, you know, outcome of the COVID pandemic has been that people, many people have been able to work remotely, work from home, things like that. And a lot of people don't want to go back to the office. Some people really do want to go back to the office. And there's you know, it's a lot of interesting ethical and political issues having to do with that. But um, point being, the notion of being able to determine your schedule to determine where you spend your time, right, is, is not, um, is non-trivial. It really is. Okay, second term, jubilee, yovel. So shana zot muvdelat mishar shanim minikivat shem la levada. So this year is specified uniquely amongst all other years because it's given a special name. What's the special name? Yovel. Yovel shema. Its name is jubilee. Al shem tekiat shofar. Why? Because it's named after the, the blowing of the shofar. In, in another verse elsewhere in the Torah, in Shemot specifically, in, in the book of Exodus, it refers to blowing the shofar as a yovel. So the blast of the shofar is kind of is associated with Jubilee. One question I want to ask you here is, which of these is right? Is, what's, the, what's the essence of yovel? Is it the freeing of the slaves? Or is it the blowing of the shofar? We're going to look at a midrash that's actually very confused about this because it's not clear. Right? This is where Rashi's, I think, getting this kind of this, uh, this binary view. But another way of putting that is, is something, is Yovel something that we do? Or is Yovel something that is done to us? Right? Is, is, is it some, is, are we freed? You know, are we freed by God or is freeing something that we need to do? The shofar blast, I think, symbolizes that, that, um, that ambiguity. Shofar blast, it's a catharsis. It's a, it's a release. It's forceful. It, it, you know, it, 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 when you think of the shofar, it breaks you apart. It shatters chains. It blows you into the future. Right? The shofar the blowing of the horn signifies something. But is the Yovel only something that is symbolic or is there something real that has to happen? Okay. I also want to note that the translation on Sfaria uses the word Jobel, which is just cute. Um, all right, so, but you know, Rashi's wonderful. So wonderful, he and I have the same name. Um, but there are other rabbis. Don't ever be uh, tricked into thinking there aren't other commentators. There are other commentators. So Ibn Ezra says, Ibn Ezra, uh, 11, or mostly 12th century Spanish rationalist, but also Neoplatonist, grammarian, very language-oriented. Um, what does he say? Well, on drawer, he says, Yedua 
שהוא כמו חופשי, וכדרור לאוף אוף קטן, מנגן כשהוא ברשותו. That's beautiful. It says the meaning of the word דרור, it's known. It's not like a secret. People know the word. It means liberty. Great, fine. How? He quotes a pasuk from Mishle. He says, as the flying swallow. Ah, as the flying swallow. Um, kidror la'of. Of katan. Right? The swallow is a small bird. Minagain, a small songbird. And when does it sing? Minagain shehu birshuto. It sings when it's free. When it is under its own control. You know, what's the famous, um, famous poem, right, by um, Maya Angelou. I know why the caged bird sings, she says. All right, but here, you know, the, what, what Angelou is, is playing on, right, is that there's something ironic about a caged bird expressing itself through song, right, which is a sign of freedom. Now, you know, she's saying all freedom is, no freedom is, 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 is simple, all freedom is complex, that there's ways to find freedom even within constraint, right, reflecting on the African-American experience or an African-American experience. But then kind of but the, the, the simple relationship is that when you are freed from your prison, right, you burst into song. So the swallow, when it's left out of its cage, sings. But if it is trapped in a dovecoat, right, in a bird cage, what have you, it's not able to sing until it dies. So, I mean, it's very interesting. He starts by saying, listen, the shot is liberation. But then he cites a pasuk that says dror, actually, we have a noun, the word dror. It's kind of like the word chasida, means stork. Right, in um in biblical Hebrew, and it has to do with the you know the love that has to do with the stork, a very controversial midrash. I don't want to get into right now, but the swallow is called Jeror, and why is the swallow called free bird? Free bird. Why is it called free bird? Because it sings when it's free, and it doesn't sing if it's not, which again impels us then to free the swallow. Right. Free the swallow so it can sing. Free the slaves so they can be they can um, they can thrive. The natural condition or the most the most complete condition, right? The most actualized condition is to be free. Oh, we want more bird song in this world. We want more human actualization, human thriving, human potential to be achieved, and thus. Uh, freedom needs to be uh, instituted. Uh, okay. Yovel, says Ibn Ezra, kemo shiluach, right? It, like shaluach, means like you're sent. Aha, that's very interesting. Why? Chazal amru sheperush yovel kavesh, o keves, varaya shofrota yovelim vinikra'ah shana b'shem shofar. So Chazal, the rabbi, said that the meaning of Yovel is keves, it's a lamb. And the proof is it says, shofarot hayovelim, the horns of the rams. So the shofar, right, 
we're going to show Fermi's horns, ram horns. And what is it that comes, what does the ram horn come from? It comes from a ram. So Yovel means a sheep, right? A ram. And the year is called after the, after the name of the shofar. So Ibn Ezra is saying that it's called Yovel not because of anything inherent in it, but because it is associated with the shofar. In a way, he's agreeing with Rashi, right? Rashi also says that Yovel has to do with the shofar, right? Yovel is the name of the shofar blast, he says. And Ibn Ezra says Yovel is the name of the source of the shofar, right? The ram. But both of them don't have a sense of what Yovel means on its own. It really is saying it's a metonymy. It's metonymy for the shofar blast. Yovel really means just the year of the shofar blast. But does it because he's, he gestures in the beginning, like here, he kind of does a double step. He says, ah, oh, dror means chofshi, it means free. But then he says, oh, no, but it has to do with the swallow. Here, he's, before he says it means the ram, right, the sheep, he says, no, it means shaluach. It means that you're sent, you're transported. So I want you to hold that in your mind because we're going to get to what that means later on down the road. Um, okay, but just uh, any thoughts? Before we move forward with other perushim, okay. So we are exploring here, right, the twin terminology of Jeror and Yovel. That these two terms, right, Jeror Yikra, you know, Kara to Jeror Ba'arz L'Chol Yishva, right, proclaim liberty, liberation throughout the land for all of its inhabitants, and that's called Yovel. So it's called both drawer and yovel. We're trying to figure out what do these two key terms mean to contribute towards understanding the nature of this year. And we've seen that drawer seems to have to do with being freed, right? Human beings that they're freed. Or Ibn Ezra has this pungent image of the swallow who is only able to sing when it's when it has uh, its own autonomy, and that kind of has this moral push behind it, right? That the natural condition is to be freed, something unnatural about being contained or constrained. But we're still at a loss when it comes to Yovel because both Rashi and Ibn Ezra seem to think that it's only associative. Yovel refers to the shofar blowing or refers to the shofar itself coming from the ram. So we're missing what Yovel itself actually means. But Ibn Ezra gestures and he says it means transported. So I just want you to keep put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. All right, here comes Ramban, Nachmanides, and we're going to skip the part when he disagrees with Rashi, as he so loves to do. Um, so and he, then he disagrees with Ibn Ezra. Da, 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 da. Um, I want to get to the end in which he says, um, here we go. Sorry, I went a little too far. Um, he says, Yovel he, that is a year in which every person is carried away to their possession and that their feet transport them to their family afar off to sojourn. Right. What does Yovel mean? It means to return. Why? We go back to Ibn Ezra. He was hinting at it in his first Suggestion, he said it means to be sent. So Yovel means to move. It means motion. I want, I want to kind of, I want to put a pin in that. I want to focus on that for a second because motion is the essence of change. 
right? So when something is in a static, I'm going to use the word state here, but static means state-like, right? When something's static, it doesn't move. It's frozen, it's reified, right? It can't change. Dynamos, energy, movement, motion, right? Think of molecules. Think of the behavior of molecules. In low energetic states, molecules are sluggish and don't move. High energetic states, right? Um, adding heat, something like that, right, to a system. Mo molecules start bouncing around, right? That's how bubbling water works, steam, etc. You start gushing forth and everything, right? Change, motion means change. Yovel is an intervention into a static situation in which change starts to happen. But it's a certain kind of change because it is a return to something to its source. Here again, I think we hear the resonances of Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur, the notion of tshuva, right? Of tshuva, which means both on one hand, change, changing yourself, but on the other hand, it means a return to who you want to be, to the person that you intended to be all along. Right? It's both on one hand, something new, but on the other hand, a return to something old. Yovel captures that dichotomy. Yovel is, is, is a motion, a revolution. The revolution, right, is on one hand an overturning of something, a complete radical change to society. A revolution also means a circle that goes around to its beginning. Right? The earth revolves around the sun. The moon revolves around the earth. Right? Orbits bring you back to your source, bring you back to the origin. You're moving, but on the other hand, you are coming back home. Yeah, Renee, I saw your hand. I was just, um, before you got to it, before you said tshuva, I was going to ask, does it say tshuva anywhere in the Hebrew? I was trying to find it. Um, but... No. Yeah. Tashuvu uh, ishalachuzato. That's the closest we have. But it's not tshuva, okay. the word like repentance. Right. But tashuvu, right, which is what the root of the word tshuva. It was a shuv, to return. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. No, but your 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 intuition of that is quite right, right? That again, the return of the Yom Kippur thematics to Yovel, that it is both. I mean, I, but I really want to say it's not just return. It is, it is this di dichotomy of motion and return. Right? It's a motion that moves you forward, but it brings you also back home. You're moving forward, but on the other hand, you're returning. It's a little bit paradoxical, or parallaxical. I want to say, right? It's two things occurring at the same time. Neither one contradict the another one negate the other parallax is and it's like a, also it's an astronomical term um has to do with the way in which stars behave in terms of being able to see them because of the force of gravity the way it warps our you know our ability to you know the way that light is transmitted point is that you can actually see something in two different spots even though it is only occupying one of them so parallax is to hold two things at the same time um Slavo Zizek has a book called The Parallax View, but it's also a movie, right? Isn't that a movie? It's a movie. Okay. I'm going to say it's a movie. Um, so, so, yeah, so Ramban so brings in the notion of, uh, he brings back Ibn Ezra's notion of shaluach, to be sent. He says, ah, but it also means to return. And then further he goes on and says, and here he says, alderech emet, which is the way he introduces a Kabbalistic sense to his, in, his interpretation. He says, 
Deror Milashon Dor Holech Vidor Ba. He actually harmonizes Yovel and Deror, and he says, I mean, I think implicitly, like Yovel means both motion and return. Deror, which we thought meant liberation, freedom. And we think, you know, freedom is anarchic, right? You're freed from something, but maybe also you're freed to something. He says, Deror is from the notion, from the language of a generation goes and generation returns, right? Dor holech dor ba from Ecclesiastes. V'chein yovel shiyashuv el hayovel, asher shem shorshav v'hiti elachem. And yovel, because you return to the yovel. And here we go back to its association with Yom Kippur. I don't want to go too deep into this, but the fact that the horn is blown on Yom Kippur, which signifies Yovel, is again, not an accident. Yom Kippur is like Yovel, associated with the number 50. Why? Associated with the 50 gates of wisdom, which are associated with the Sphera of Bina, which is the cosmic mother. So Yovel and Yom Kippur are a change in yourself that brings you back in some way to something elemental within yourself to your ultimate source. Now, spiritually, that means like back to your ideal vision of, your, of yourself, to your neshama, to your soul. Cosmically, metaphysically, returning to the cosmic source, to the cosmic womb, to the, the mythical mother, as it were. Um, uh, so, um, I think we're going to move past Rabbeinu Bachya because, um, take Ramban, and then turn that up a few notches, and that's how uh, intense Rabbeinu Bachi is. But Rabbeinu Bachi is amazing. It's a he, he's one of the first Pardes commentators. He wrote a commentary that's structured in four different levels, beginning with the uh, the let's say the literary meaning, the contextual meaning, and then moving your way through uh, allegory and midrash, and then finally to um, finally to Kabbalah. Um, like you know, Ramban kind of switched from his kind of literary analysis to the Kabbalistic one, Rabbeinu Bachia makes it even more, uh, even more rigorous in that kind of way. So I want to bring us though to a contemporary reader. This is from, from Pnine Halacha, who's a contemporary Israeli posek named Yitzchak Malamed, who um, writes very lucid, very beautifully uh, works on, on Jewish law and really love in a very, you know, lucid fashion, in a very meaningful way, uh, make sure to write about not just the details of the law, but also what they mean, right? what he thinks that halacha is trying to say and trying to do. It takes a very humanistic approach to it, which I really appreciate. So Rav Malamid says, um, He's actually just going to bring it all together. He says, really, we thought maybe there's two different terms, but really, Yovel is Deror and Cherut. Yovel means liberation and freedom. Ve lashon hovelah. But it also means motion. She bishanazu hakol movel vechozer li makomo. On this year, 
during this year, everything moves and returns to its place. So we talked about that kind of in more theoretical symbolic terms above, you know, associated with the Kabbalistic significance of Yom Kippur. But remember the actual mechanics of Yovel. The mechanics of Yovel are that the, the slaves will return to their homes and the uh, land holdings will return to their original owners or le leasers, really. And this is what it says. It's a jubilee for you. Every person will return. You will return each person to their holdings, and a person will return to their family. And this is quite beautiful. He says, you know, I would say, like, like Ibn Ezra, he's going to associate, he's going to bring in a real world image. Nachal, right, which in contemporary he refers to a wadi, but I think he means this a stream. Right, stream is called Yuval. Right, if you know like any Israeli kids, they're named Yuval. Right? It's very, it's a popular name. Just like a stream by its nature or flows from its origin to its destination. Similarly, in the Jubilee year, all servitude is exploded. It's all abolished. And each, actually, I missed that phrase when I translated it. All, that's actually quite incredible. Servitude itself is abolished, is, is blown up. And each slave, Yuval, flows back to their family. All right, there's, it's, it's a very fluidic image or description of life. That there is, like all, I mean, this, what's implied here, it's quite incredible. What's implied here is that Jubilee is not, and, you know, what we, were talk, we were talking about Shemitah as a kind of corrective to the potential for exploitation in human economic relationships, whether with the environment or with other human beings. But Jubilee pushes that even further and says all of these relationships of exploitation, working the land, working your, 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 you know, your, your kinsman, your fellow human being, it's a strain. It's like stretching a rubber band and, and you need continuous tension to keep those ends apart. But if you were just to let it go, it would snap back and return to where it's supposed to be. All of these relationships of exploitation, whether they be agricultural, agronomical, or enslavements of other human beings, are unnatural, such that when that relationship is removed, when all exploitative relationships are abolished, you don't need to do anything else because people will actually return to where they're supposed to be. They will return to their kinship, right, to these fellow relationships they have, social support, their tribe, their clan, their kin networks. They return to places in which they are taken care of not places in which they're used.
So on one hand, Yovel is a revolution in terms of being a complete overturning of, of, of human society, the basic aspects of what it means to have civilization, right? Farming the land, using the earth, and using each other. But it's also a revolution in the sense of it's things and people returning to home, returning to their place of origin, to where they're supposed to be. It's a it's the path of least resistance for people to be free, says God. Thoughts? Okay. I'm going to take that as enthusiastic agreement. Um, so here's the Midrash. And here what we have is Rabbi Yehuda confused and Rabbi Yossi confused. They're both confused because kind of like Shabbat, the question is, let's say you don't light Shabbos candles. Does Shabbat still happen? The answer is obviously, yes, of course. But here the question is, if you're supposed to blow the shofar on the 10th day of Tishrei or on Yom Kippur, what if you don't blow it? Does Jubilee still happen? Or another way of putting it is, says Rabbi Yossi, what if you don't free the slaves? Does Yovel still happen? And the answer is yes. And they quote, a, they quote the Pasuk. It says, Yovel he. Yes, Jubilee happens. Jubilee is. It occurs. But they're both kind of highlighting that it is uh, an ambivalent object because it needs some kind of involvement for it to be not just to happen, but to be actualized. But I find very striking, though, as we get to the end, he says, he says, it's possible for there to be jubilee without freeing the slaves, says Rebbe Yossi. And that's why we have the Pasuk about the shofar. Why is it possible for there to be jubilee without freeing the slaves? Don't look at the English. Just, try, just think about it for a second. How could it be possible for there to be jubilee without freeing the slaves? I would think it's the equivalent of being the Chalos Shabbos. Like you didn't do what you were supposed to do. It's okay. still jubilee. Sure. But you didn't do it. Just like on Shabbat, it's still Shabbat, right. but even it's possible, if you transgressed it. It's possible to do Shabbos, though, without without changing your life at all. Right? I'm not saying maybe every day, but let's say on Friday, you just don't do any malacha. Okay, but it's still not Shabbat because it's a time-based thing. Like no, you, sure, could say, but, you could say, but, oh, well, so but think of the analogy. Week, Wait, think of the analogy. Okay, so with Jubilee, it's still Jubilee, even if you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Right, because but what if there was no change? It's a time-bound thing. So the Jubilee is there, but, you're but assuming... people didn't perform what they were supposed to perform. Right, but you're, you're assuming one thing, right? Which you're starting is? starting from a should perspective. Nahon. But don't start from outside saying something's wrong. Start from the inside. If someone didn't free slaves, why? How is that com potentially a completely legitimate option? I don't see how it could be legitimate. What if there were no slaves? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's right, so really, that really taking it far, but it's a possibility. It's possible, right? So it's possible to have Jubilee without freeing the slaves. Why? In a sense, because you beat uh, God no to the punch. No one owned any slaves. Okay. Because you beat God to the punch, right? No, there are no mm. slaves anymore. I freed all the slaves. I took okay. you. I'm like, Mahmir, Mahadrin, Mahadrin on Jubilee. 
Oh, I'm so frum, so stark. I would never own a slave, right? That's like, that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. That's where Rambam's pushing things, right? Rambam's laws of slavery is pushing that actually like, is these exploitative relationships are not good for us. And it's better to free slaves. Um, and we're going to get to the, again, the problematics when it has to do with Jewish versus non-Jewish slaves, which is, you know, genuinely like ethically challenging. Um, but just let's, again, let's just kind of stay in the theoretical zone here. If you beat God to the punch, as it were, and you freed all the slaves in the 49th year, just because you know what, it's not good to have them, then you can still, Jubilee still occurs without that. But you can always find a shofar. Mm. Right? Like shofars are around. You can get a shofar, right? So Rebbe Yossi says you can't really have Jubilee without blowing the shofar because there's no reason for you not to. So another way of putting it is, Freeing the slaves is a conditional need. It's conditioned on, it's contingent, right? It's contingent on you being already in an unethical situation or a less, a less than ideal situation of owning someone's body, someone's labor, etc., having rights to it. But when it comes to the shofar, the shofar is actually strictly about producing something. It's producing a certain kind of sound that is supposed to, you know, in Rambam's language, when referring to Elul, Blast us, you know, like an alarm clock. Shake us awake. Move us. Change depends on motion. To move you from where you were to where else you could be. To shift you so you can reflect critically on where you've been. You need the shofar because we need to be blasted out of where we are. We need to be moved. Okay. Wouldn't it still be your will, though, even though... Yeah, it would be. The time... I mean, the time of your veil, although we don't know anymore, but yeah. the 50th year would mean it's your veil whether somebody blew a shofar or not or observed it or not. Yes, but, he, but in a way he's saying you have no excuse not to blow the shofar. Ah, no reason not okay. to. But yes, it's still yoga. Even if you don't declare it, it's still yoga. Well, here comes a very interesting Dvarachar. It says, Dvarachar, Tkiyat shofar tluyabavet din? Right, it's the it's the base dean, right? It's the court, the rabbinic court that is responsible for blowing the shofar, right? It's you know actually we're going to see a disagreement about this in a second. He says it is a corporate communal responsibility to blow the shofar, but the task of freeing the slaves is dependent on each and every one of us. That's something that is up to you, and that means then that you know if you have already done that, then it's not there's nothing left to do. Um, I mean, except for you know, cease agricultural work and, blow it and make sure that you hear the shofar. Rambam, so, though, says, he says, it's a mitzvah say it's a positive commandment to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur, the year of Yovel. And this mitzvah is transmitted right into the hands of the Beit Din. First, he says, but not entirely. It's first, it says, Vavar to shofar trua, fine. V'chol yachid v'yachid chayav likoa, but... It's not just the court that needs to blow. Each and every individual actually needs to blow them for themselves as well. So the shofar is doing something important such that Ra Rambam is saying it's not just something passively that just has to happen factually out there. Oh, I know that the basing blew the shofar. I know that objectively. But rather, it is subjectively, right, in your experience, something that you need to not just receive theoretically, but actively participate in. You need to blow that shofar. You need to take up that horn and proclaim liberation throughout the land. I think Rambam has a notion in which every individual is not just implicated in Jubilee, but needs to be an active and willing participant 
in the work in this year of liberation. You can't just be carried by the stream as it flows home, right? It's a beautiful image that Ramban, that Rav Malamed was talking about, the Jubilee as this kind of, again, you let go of all of our constraints and we flow on home. But Rambam's saying, like, there's something spiritually true about that, but we get, it's a dangerous precedent to set to say that just your soul will carry you along with it. That's not the case. We need to still be actively engaged and contributing ourselves, our bodies, our energy, our will, our volition, right, our, our, our intention into this work, into this year. Um, There's a whole excursus about the freeing of the slaves in the second half of the source sheet that in a way I'm going to largely stay outside, right? We're not going to go verse by verse in this, but again, I will make sure to share the source sheet after, and there's lots of Torah to learn in, um, there's never, there's never Torah not to learn. There's always Torah to learn. So, um, the Torah starts by speaking about contingent circumstances, right? As the instructions about Yovel continue, God says, if you, if, if you in the community are, end up being in, a, in dire straits in which your last resource you have on hand is yourself, right? it's your body, you sell yourself into slavery, but then God comes along and says, however, there's again, parallax view. On one hand, you sell yourself into slavery, but on the other hand, God says, do not treat them like a slave. Right. Um, because they will be freed along with their children once the um, once the Jubilee occurs. Why? Because in, in, here again, there is a strict parallel between the land and humans. Just like the land returns to its original owners, its original leaseholders at Yeovil, so do you you also return to your original leaseholders, i.e. to your family, to your family holdings, to your, you get to go home. You get to go home at the yoga. Ki avadaihem, because all pretenses towards ownership of land or human beings is false. Because whose slaves are we really? Even if you are free, we are God's slaves. So any of our selling ourselves or being bought and sold always is done under the pretenses of God's ultimate directorship, of God's ultimate ownership. They're my slaves. I freed them from Egypt. In a way, God said, like, I bought them. They're mine now. But to be God's slave is to be free. I know that sounds like very Orwellian, but what I mean to say is <laughs> to be a slave of God's is not to be a slave like we understand it, not to be a wage slave, not to be an employee, but rather it is to be a radically different relationship that is towards our liberation, towards our actualization. It is radically different, right? God is not like a king of, of human flesh, of flesh and blood. And thus, any relationship to God is not like a human relationship at all. So what we call, you know, God doesn't have hands, ears, etc. But we call them hands and ears. Similarly, to be a slave of God's is nothing at all like what it means to be enslaved by a human being. 
I freed them from Eretz Mitzrayim. Lo yimachrumim keret aved. They cannot be sold like chattel, is effectively what he's saying. Yeah, Shosh. Um, is this text saying that we can achieve like freedom from being enslaved by God, or saying like that one you just surrender, but the other one you can be free from? God's saying that all, all um, in servitude, right, in which you sell yourself into slavery so you get out of debt, is all done under the pretense of of the temporary licenses that God allows. But Yovel proves that the ultimate relationship we have, which is why we can never really sell ourselves, we can only, in a way, lease ourselves. Right. Because ultimately, we are owned by God. But what it means to be owned by God is not what it, like what it means to be owned by a human being. To be owned by God is to be in a radically different kind of relationship. Hmm. One that's aimed towards and intended towards our liberation and our actualization. Yeah, Ellen. This is not the right time, but can you address before the end of class what happens on year 51 or year one? Uh, year 51 is the first year of the next Shemitah cycle. Right, but everything goes back the way it was, or you... Yeah, so the ideal image, right, the ideal vision of, of Yovel is, so after Shemitah, every, you know, no one's working the land, all debts are abolished, comes the Yovel, an interesting question is what's happening between the first day of the of the Yovel year and Yom Kippur. We'll get to that. Um, comes Yom Kippur, horn is blown at the end of the day, right? All land, all like land um, te, uh, deeds for land ownership are are uh, are abrogated, right? They're all abolished. All the land ownership goes back to how it was originally apportioned when the Hebrews entered the land. All Hebrew slaves are freed. Both, I mean, we'll get to this, we'll get to the details of that. And it's not like they go back to their owners in the 51st year. They're freed. They go home. It's over. The contract is over. Um, and then life starts again, and then people, again, you know, hopefully do it better this time. I think that's the general idea that we've tried to look at, is that Shemitah and Yovel now, all the more so, are interruptions in things that we treat as normal and natural. But God is showing us, no, all of these things are actually invented, and all of them put us under strain. And, it, and God is proposing ways to bring harmony back to our relationships with the earth and with each other, whether in debt or whether in servitude, or whether agricultural work, or what it means to own land, or what it means to actually have less strain and less pressure, less stress, to see what that vision of life could look like, such that when, when we go back to normal economic relationships and you know back to life as life as it is, hopefully we do it better because we have again parallax view. We have a we we take with us the vision of how else it could be, and we work it into the world as it as it is. And just like the spiral of tshuva, we go back to where we were, we go back to normal life, but hopefully we're moving forward as we do. It's getting a little bit better each time until finally it, it, we're, we're able to end the cycle. And that's where we're going. That Jubilee is, like Yom Kippur especially, 
a pretense or a taste of Mashiach. Right, the shofar is blown. When else is the shofar blown? Right, we're, we're, we're getting that, we're getting, we're moving towards that, but I hope we can kind of see the, the taste of that. Parallax view is key here. Shemitah and Yovel, all the more so, show us how else life could be such that when we go back to the real world, we can't forget how else the world can function. What a more harmonious and less straining relationship with the earth and with each other and with ourselves can be. Okay? I mean, I mean, again, like, I'm not saying you have to, like, agree or swallow it whole. I'm just, I just want to make sure we like, get the, the theory that I'm, I'm positing here. Again, you don't need to agree with me. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to make an argument. Um, you never have to agree with me. Um, Ellen, do you have your the hands still, do you have something else you want to ask or add? Okay. Great. Great question though. I'm glad, thank you for clarifying that. I, I, I always like get to the, the, uh, the hoity-toity stuff first, but let's just, you know, meet on the meat and potatoes, right? What, how does this work, right? So Yovel, everything returns to its original holding, people and land. And then when real world starts again, we take that with us, inside of us, as now we start forming new, potentially exploitative relationships, but maybe hopefully a little bit less bad. Because as God then concludes the section, lo you're not supposed to like drive someone to break down. So in normal life, you're supposed to not go full throttle. You're not supposed to like say, oh, I have a license to be cruel. I have a license to do whatever I want. No, even when we're allowed to enter these potentially exploitative relationships, we're supposed to have a hand on the brake. We're supposed to have a vision of how better it's supposed to be, how else it can be. And that's what Shemitah and Yobar are continually trying to teach us. So, El Achuzat Avotav, says Rashi, El Kavod Avotav, Ve'en Lezal Zalobachach. And to Ellen's point, says, and unto the possession of his father shall you return. Okay, so like, what does this look like? You are freed from your slavery relationship, but what does it mean to go home? You're freed from your from your servitude, but imagine like what it is like to slink back home. How how imagine yourself in that position, right? You sold yourself into slavery because you fell on hard times. What kind of feelings are associated with making that kind of choice? You might feel ashamed. You might feel like a failure. You might feel embarrassed to go home, to show up and everyone knows what you did. And Rashi, quoting the Midrash, says, no, you go home to dignity. What it means to go home to your ancestral lands means to go back to dignity that is possessed by your ancestors. It's not to erase what you did, but rather that you were always contained within, you were always held within the dignity that is accorded to every human being. And no one is allowed to make you feel ashamed. It's a very powerful corrective here that Rashi is insisting on. Okay, further on, as God continues vis-a-vis I, you know, it's not explicitly about Jubilee here, but like, the transition is, okay, what does it mean to engage in non-ideal activity when it comes to other human beings, i.e. ownership, right? Servitude, slavery. It says, 
very clearly, actually, that this the laws of Jubilee extend not just to Jews owning Jewish slaves, but even non-Jews who own Jewish slaves still have to free them at the Yovel. Now, it's very interesting. I mean, the commentaries make clear this refers to non-Jews living within Jewish-controlled areas, because otherwise they wouldn't be following Torah, right? So if you are a Jewish slave owned by a non-Jew in, you know, the Vatican City, whatever, right, they're not going to free you when Jubilee comes. And I think maybe going back to the Midrash is what happens, is there still Jubilee even if the slaves aren't freed? I think it recognizes there's something true about Jubilee beyond, in a way, what we're able to accomplish. There's something spiritually true about it. That even if, you know, I know why the caged birds sing, even if your body is not freed, I think in a way the implication is Jubilee is still real. You, you are still freed, even if maybe it doesn't look like you are. But ideally, if the non-Jew living in a Jewish controlled area becomes wealthy enough to basically, you know, set up shop, then at the, what, come the Yovel, they, they need to free the Jewish slave as well. Um, and at all, like, and when you sell yourself in that kind of way, it has to be understood that you are selling yourself until the Jubilee. Right, so it gets marked off, and it has a whole accounting thing here, which we're not going to get too into the weeds. Um, but again, God insists, um, it is to me that the Israelites are servants; they are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. I, your God. All human exploitative relationships are stories that we tell, that are that are functional but are not true. So. This is a very interesting kind of tangent we're going to take, but it's, 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 you'll, you'll be very surprised by this. Ah, so we're, we're getting to that, Lauren. Have no fear. Um, I, I want, let's pay attention to this passage. All right. Moshe all around. God said to Moses and Aaron. This is Shmos chapter 6, right? So this is, Israelites are, are in the midst of being enslaved, right? We're just getting into, this, into the plagues. Vayetzavim el b'nei Yisrael v'el paro, commanding regarding Israelites and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, l'hotziat b'nei Yisrael meret Yisraim, to set free, to send forth the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Who is the Pusuk directed towards? First of all, who does God speak to? To Moshe and Aaron. Good. And who does God tell them to speak to? Paro. And? The Jew, um, and the Jews. The, and the Jews, yeah. But what's the substance? What's the predicate, right? What's the substance of the command? Instructing them to deliver the Israelites to the land of Egypt. So it's telling that makes Paro. makes sense when it comes to Pharaoh. Sure, he owns all the slaves of Egypt. But why the Jews then? Telling them it's about to happen. Okay, totally possible. Maybe he's saying, listen, he's commanding in regards to Pharaoh and also vis-a-vis -vis the Jews. Good. It's not it's not to Pharaoh. It's about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's relationship with the Jews. Here's another idea. So this is from Mayor Simchav Dvinsk, uh, important Musser 
rabbi of the 19th century, wrote an incredible commentary called Meshachachma. In it he says, God commanded the Israelites and Pharaoh to send forth the Israelites. It seems that even during their servitude in Egypt, amidst the Jews, there were the privileged of the community who were honored elites who took their own people as slaves. So just to clarify, the Meshachachma is saying, even when the Jews were enslaved, like as a people, we didn't have solidarity amongst the people. There were class differences. And some Jews weren't, I mean, maybe they were still slaves, but they still had permission to enslave other Jews. Or maybe they were freed, and then they used their freedom to enslave their fellow Jews. But some Jews, some big muckety-muck Jews, didn't, did not see themselves as resisting the exploitation of Pharaoh, but decided in a sense to collaborate with it. They're capos, right? They're Jews who went along with a regime of oppression and decided to participate in it rather than to resist it. So some rich Jews, elite Jews, took other Jews as slaves, even in Egypt. And thus, God commanded that the Israelites, as well as Pharaoh, set free the Jewish people from servitude. That is why in Jeremiah it says, Renee, it, just read the quote. Where does it say, oh, I have made a covenant with your ancestors when I took you out of Egypt. All right, the end of seven years, send forth your Hebrew can. It's called okay. Brit. In, so in a Pasuk in Yirmiyahu says that it is a Brit. Anochi karti Brit et avotechem. I have struck a covenant with your ancestors. Right? It is a covenant. Shemitah and Yovel are not just things that happen. They are agreements made with the people as a whole and how this works, how society works, how the world needs to work. And it can't just be something passive. I mean, the mayor, the mayor Simcha of Devinsk makes this very clear and says it's not just that we need to involve ourselves because it's the right thing to do. We're implicated in this. We're implicated in what it means to help to create a, a less free world, a more oppressive world, a more exploitative world. It's a covenant with us too. I think part of what, 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 why I wanted to include this is that Yovel and Shemitah, but Yovel especially because Yovel has to do with slavery, with human exploitation, the bo human bondage, is that we are implicated in what it means to contribute towards exploitation. And thus, Yovel is asking us, everyone blows their own shofar. Everyone is freeing the slaves is up to us. We need to do a real cheshbon and nefesh, a real personal accounting, and see the ways in which we have contributed to exploitative relations and to undo it. Yeah, Shosh. Oops. Um, okay, so I'm trying to put this together with the other one with the other and is it basically saying that this exploit 
addictive relationships are is the whole point to also help us like understand exploitation understand ultimately that that it's kind of like an illusion and, and understand our connection or our relationship to Hashem has it because you know how it says like we see Hashem through other people like that's how we experience God well we experience God in different ways but one of the ways is through each other but saying like these relate relationships these setups exist and it exists there too is that right that's how a, we're that's to a, understand God yeah so I think you're, you're you're hitting on a number of important things but I'm going to highlight two one is yes what I was trying to describe before is what I would call a pedagogical reading of Shemitah and Yovel which Shemitah and Yovel are trying to show us how else life could be, how else the world can work, such that it's supposed to ingrain that within us, train us out of seeing the earth, creation, other human beings as potential sources of profit, and instead see them as their own human beings, their own entities, their own partners in this relationship to create a more equitable partnership. So A, there's the pedagogy in terms of what it means to train us out of exploitation, yes. But secondly, being specifically focusing on the, the act of slavery or enslavement, if, I mean, to your point, right, if we are made in the image of God, and thus there's always going to be some kind of analogical relationship between humans and God. Not identical, right? We're not idolaters. We don't think that God is a human being, but rather there's something analogous between human beings and God, right? We're made in the image of God. So... What does it mean then to enslave another human being? Isn't that then going to inhibit or damage how we see God too? Or the way our access to God? Abraham Joshua Heschel, blessed memory, said that racism is a form of idolatry because it is defacing the image of God. Right? It's seeing another human being who are made in the image of God and defacing right, and denigrating. We don't have idols. We have human beings. So to your point, Shosh, right, is that slavery does spiritual damage to us. Yovel frees us from that to take a breather and hopefully get some critical distance from it and hopefully bring us back to God's ideal vision of not oppressing. Yeah, Lauren. I've always seen the, the covenant, the breed being basically a three-way agreement between Hashem, the Jewish people, and the country, and the land of Israel. And the Jews have to uphold the mitzvot, including, you know, the ones from, that you would do close lines, but the ones especially for the land of Israel. And that if, if you do things wrong, like in, in Sefer Malachim, where they, they worshipped idols and treated others badly, you lose the land. It's game over. You broke the contract. So isn't this still part of that? I mean, I made a covenant. I made a contract with your ancestors when I took them out of G Egypt. And Yovel is all, and Shemitah is also part of the rule. Mm -hmm. You blow right. it, you're out. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the contract that God strikes with us in terms of what it means to have continued stewardship over the land of Israel. Absolutely. Right? That we see specifically in which God says, and if you don't, if you violate the contract, then you, the land will vomit you out. Da, da, da. Exactly. Right. But that's a specific thing that shows up in Torah. Here we have something distinct in Jeremiah, in which he's saying Shemitah itself is a contract. 
Yovel itself is a contract, right? It is a uh, as opposed to any uh, other breed. It's not okay. about possessing the land. Rather, it is, I think, about what it means to involve us, even implicate us, in 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 its not just in its mechanics and how it works, but also in terms of what it's supposed to do. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the question that we've been uh, so this is actually really really cool. Uh, Rambam. I mean, all the Rambams are cool, but um. He says, so as I said before, okay, so if Jubilee is declared on Yom Kippur, we have this interregnum period. It says from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, he says the, the slaves were not yet freed, but they were also not worked. Rather, the slaves ate and drank and made merry with crowns affixed to their heads. Fascinating image. They're not quite there yet, but still, and this is a really important point, it's still Yovel before the shofar is blown. They're not allowed to be enslaved. They're not allowed to be worked. It's just they're not free yet. But they sit and eat and be merry and drink with, it seems like, an equal standing to their masters. Again, just like the point of Shemitah is the eighth year, the point of Yovel is the 51st year. What how does a master enter normal life again after having seen that slaves are human beings? They eat, they drink, they have feelings. They have inner lives. They have a right to joy and to pleasure and to freedom. How do they then go and enslave somebody else, right? Contract somebody into servitude and then just dehumanize them? Hopefully, Shemitah and Yov, ideally, I'm saying, Shemitah and Yov are designed to undo the ways in which we have learned to t reduce people to means and see them again as their own free entities. That it's a human being that you are forcing to work. And hopefully that means that if you are forced to take a slave again, let's say someone sells themselves to you, that you're not able to forget the imprinted in your consciousness what a slave looks like when they're free that they're a human being just like you. Okay, so here's the, and again, I think we're gonna largely do this outside because we're running short on time. But he, here, here are the verses in terms of um, non-Jewish slaves. And we actually gestured to this before in which Rabbi Akiva infamously says in the Talmud that it's actually a, obligation to uh, retain ownership of, of non-Jewish slaves in perpetuity, that you're not supposed to free them. Which, you know, really, click nish off my noggin, right? It's, it, 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 like it, you know, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. Um, I think in some, again, but I'm, I'm serious about what it means to have an honest accounting of Torah, and also a notion in which Torah is painting a vision of what the ideal can be, but within the constraints of what the real is. Right, so it has an ability, God is able to communicate certain, you know, you cannot tell people things that they can't hear. So God is able to push the Jews into what it means to chip away at the ways in which we exploit each other by having Jewish slavery be, you know, a seven-year contract. And even then, if you renew that contract forever, as we're about to look at soon, that still is then still constrained by the Yovel, which sets Jewish slaves free. And that even applies even if you sell yourself to a non-Jewish owner as long as, again, we're in the Jewish society. But we still have this, not, you know, the problem of the non-Jewish slave in the sense that it kind of has a sense of like chattel slavery ownership. 
And it says specifically, you may keep them as possession for your children. Now, actually, again, there's like push and pull. Rashi says, you can have them as possession for your children, but you're not commanded to hand them down to your children. You can let the, the, term, the, the terms expire if you're, you know, you don't need to force them into your children's ownership. So again, it's not like it is shoved down our throats that you need to keep them in perpetual, in perpetual slavery, but you're allowed to retain them for, uh, to be transmitted to your children's ownership for them to inherit his property for all time, le'olam bahem ta'avodu, right? For forever will they work, le'olam, okay? Now, where else does le'olam show up? Ah, well, let's go back to the, to the plan, mechanics of Jewish slavery. If you decide to re-up your contract at the end of a seven-year term, then, famously, right, you take them before God, or other people translate before the judge, right? Elohim can also mean judge. You're brought to the doorpost, right? And a master pierces your ear against the doorpost to kind of like attach you to this household, right? And then he shall remain his master's slave forever. Le'olam. 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 Comes the rabbinic interpretation. What does Le'olam mean? Ad ha'yovel. Le'olam means forever doesn't mean forever, forever, forever. It means until the Jubilee year. That's when forever ends. Forever is never forever. Jubilee, again, shows us what permanent, only God can have something permanently. No human being can have something permanently. Maybe it just means forever for real. No, because it says every person returns to their ancestral family. We saw that before in Leviticus 25. Right? 50 years is what forever really means. And you shouldn't even be enslaved all 50 years. El rather, you should be worked until the Yovel. So if you were sold in year 43, seven years later, you're freed. It's not like you're, you're, it's not like you're enslaved for 50 years. You're enslaved until the Jubilee year. Okay. So then maybe Olam for a non-Jewish slave also means for Yovel. Until Yovel. Sadly. Not. Gemara says, maybe you can say, just like with a Jewish slave, that just like an ancestral field returns to its owners in the Jehovah, so too a Canaanite slave, a non-Jewish slave, returns to his prior owners in the Jubilee. Maybe, you know, that contract is abolished. And, you know, if that guy's dead, then he's done. He's, he's out. He's free. But the verse says, of them you may take your slaves forever. So the verse specifies, le'olam behem ta'avodu. So because the verse says le'olam, it means that it's forever. But you can come right back and say, like Tosfot are about to, but with the Jewish slave, when it says forever, it means until the Jubilee. So why isn't it Jubilee here? And the answer he says is because it wouldn't then have um, spoken of the returning of the land holdings. If, I'm sorry, it, would have, it wouldn't have said that in additional animal. If. The intention of the Pasuk was that the non-Jewish slave and the land holdings work the same, i.e. they go back to their original owner, then it wouldn't have said you work them forever. To add in that phrase, you work them forever, means it's something on top of the return mechanism of the land holdings. And it, then it's not the case that it's parallel to the Jewish slave ownership. So it seems that, you know, in the authoritative rabbinic reading of this Pasuk, that while le'olam means until the jubilee for the Jewish slave, le'olam means in perpetuity for the non-Jewish slave. But the question I want to leave us with 
vis-a-vis the Jubilee is if forever can ever really mean forever. Forever? Forever ever? The claim I've been arguing throughout is that Jubilee undercuts any notion of permanency when it comes to human relations, whether with the earth or with other human beings. A Jubilee explodes relationships in which you deign or dare to have control over something that is ultimately its own entity, something that has its own purpose in life, its own telos, its own reason to live. That Jubilee intervenes in those relationships and separates us from the hum human bondage. And I think, per what Shosh was adding before, slavery doesn't just, ins you know, as or as Hegel said famously, right? slavery, master-slave dialectic is that to be enslaved is obviously an oppression, but you're also in a way enslaved as a master too, because you are, you are corralled into what it means to control another human being, which limits you and it ruins you and it diminishes you. A master has to work in a certain kind of way. If you don't, you're not a master anymore. The king in the Ein Melech Below Am, right? No, there's no king without a nation. Just as a nation needs a king, a king needs a nation. So there's all kinds of unfreedom here. And Yovel is trying to insert itself in there and to show us, to shine a to reflect that to us, to help us realize how else life could be, how much freer we could be. So I asked before, when else is the shofar blown? Famous Pasuk in Yishayahu, and we'll be in that day. This Pasuk should sound familiar from Yom Kippur, right? A great, a show, uh, there will be a great shofar blast. Right? And that the those who are wandering, those who are erring, those who are lost in the Assyrian lands, i.e. in exile, and those left behind in Egypt, they will return and will bow to God on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. It's the shofar that's going to call everyone home. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, this is from Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, a later midrash. Hanina Bendosa says, from the ram which was created at twilight, nothing came forth which was useless. So there, the ram that Abraham found caught in the thicket, which he substituted for Isaac. The claim in Pirkei Avot and other places in midrash is that that ram has been there from the beginning of creation. It's one of the mystical creations, creatures that were created in between um, Friday and Saturday, just as the sun was setting at dusk. Right? In that liminal time, that liminal period, a number of, like, Moses's staff, the burning bush, uh, the tongs that were made, not made from other tongs. Um, the ram was created then, too. Also, Bilam's ass, too. The ram was created then, and every aspect of it was used. Kind of like, you know, people talk in a cliched way, right, about, like, indigenous relations and so every you know all every part of the animal is used it says the the ashes of the ram were the base for the altar the sinews of the ram became the strings of david's harp very visceral literally visceral but incredible image the skin of the ram became the girdle that elijah wore around his loins 
the horn of the ram, right, this ram that saved the Jewish people, it saved Isaac, horn of the ram on the left side of his head was the horn, was the shofar that was blown at Harsinai. And the, shof, and the horn on the right side of the ram's head is going to be the shofar that is blown to herald the coming of Mashiach. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great trumpet shall be blown. And God will be king over the entire earth. Not just the Jews. The entire earth. In a second Midrash from Ecclesiastes Rabbah, we see all the streams flow to the sea. That image should feel familiar to us from our discussion of Yovel, right? The flowing nature of liberation. That it's something that helps, it's a honing, we hone, it's like a homing beacon. It brings us home, flows home. All the streams flow to the sea. All of Israel gathered together in Jerusalem. They go up at the time of the festival each and every year, but the sea is never full. There's always room for more people to come. Rav Shmuel Bar Chova said, and the Afa says, four cubits space between each of them, etc. The idea is that when the Jews would come to, to, to the Mount, uh, to Mount Zion um, at the holidays to show themselves before God, there was always enough space. It says, but it shall to the place Israel gathers in this world, there they shall gather in the world to come, in the time to come, as it said, and shall be the day that great horn shall be blown, they shall come. Those that were lost in the land of Assyria, those that were dispersed in the land of Egypt, they shall worship God in the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So here we have, I think, a specific image in terms of um, the flow, right? The way in which Yovel is a calling of the Jews home to the mountain. But I think there's some tension here too that I'm trying to call that I try to call witness to in the in the prior text that we saw this contrast between the particular vision of liberation for the Jewish slave is, you know, that forever really means until Jubilee, but for the non-Jewish slave, forever really means forever, forever. But I think the claim I wanna make here is that Jubilee itself is, un is incomplete and it reflects the incomplete nature of redemption. Shemitah is always followed by the eighth year. Yovel is always followed by the 51st year. We're in a dialectic, right? We're, we're, we're in a, a, a state in which we're, we're caught between two contradictory things, but they're both true and they're both real. And the secret, I think the, the way out, says God, is a parallax, being able to see the two things at the same time. Shemitah has us realize and learn what a less exploitative relationship with the earth can look like what a less exploitative relationship of economic relations can look like. Yovel forces us to see that land ownership itself is already a, a destructive fiction. And that land is only really ever just given to us to borrow, to lease by God. And we can never really own the earth. And that we can never really own each other either. But still, there's still a sliver, there's still a, a, a sliver of that that's not completed because we are then allowed to retain ownership of non-Jewish slaves. So there's a redemption that has yet to come. I'm sorry in a way to hit the nail on the head here, but I, 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 have, I have tried, you know, in these two years of these classes to, to, I think, assume, I think to start with a presumption 
of, of our own ability to be sophisticated and I think in our own ability to take things seriously and not to feel like we need to hide from things. This is a challenging thing to look at face on because it does say that there is a kind of exploitation that is allowed to perpetuate when it comes to non-Jewish slave ownership. But I think the, pro the radical promise of Yovel is that, I mean, the truth is that Jewish slave ownership doesn't end either. Think about it. After Shemitah comes the eighth year. After Yovel comes the 51st year. Jews are enslaved again as soon as they have to be. The ideal is not that Jewish slave ownership ends, but rather that hopefully God has shown us a better way of working the world such that the next time that you enslave somebody, you'll do it with an, and you're not going to be able to forget what it was like to see them eating, drinking, and being merry, to see them as real human beings again, just like you. And like with the text we saw from Rambam at the end of his laws of slaveholding, he said that while it's the case that you're allowed to retain a non-Jewish slave, you are only allowed to retain them to work. You are not allowed to retain them to embarrass them, to hurt them, to shame them, to make them do tasks that make them feel bad about themselves. Rambam says that explicitly. So the key to Shemitah and Yovel is that within the world as we have it, they are critical edges that are forcing us to limit our freedom for the sake of others' freedom, to limit our, our license, our li to, not to take liberties with someone else in respect to respect another's liberty. To take liberty with someone, right, is to take away their freedom, to treat them like someone you can, you can use. But Yovel shows us that you can't because they have their own inherent right to freedom, which you are forced to recognize in ending the contract early. And when it comes to non-Jews, I think the ideal here is that that is, in a way, the frontier yet to be conquered. That the ideal is that right? that liberty and freedom, liberation will be decreed throughout the land. That we're taught to let go of these exploitative relationships even if you don't have to. How is it the case that you can have a jubilee when there are no slaves to free? because you've already freed them. That's the jubilee that's already come before it if it's forced upon us. And the final jubilee, I do, I, and I believe this with my whole heart, the final jubilee is not just another 50-year cycle. It's when Mashiach comes and liberation is decreed throughout the land, and that is for each and every human being made in the image of God. So the vision we have of Yovel is an interruption in an ideal image that we're supposed to carry with us. And I do believe that that redounds, that flows. Yovel, Yuval, it flows to where it has to go, towards the final liberation of all existence and the end of exploitation between one and another. Shkach. So it's just a quick, like, tiny, tiny... Thing. Yeah. Um, so is that image of God has, like, or us as like ultimately being slaves to God? So in a sense, like it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't matter, but you know, like the enslavement that we can face here on earth is almost insignificant compared to that. Is that also a disruption or is that how we're meant to see 
like that I don't think it's insignificant. I don't think it's insignificant. I think it is it is fictive, right? It's like it's it's not true, but it's fun. It, it works, right? Like right. you can enslave somebody, and you can do. Yes, no, I know, but I'm saying, but does that mean that because you you're saying like towards the end, like that's a disruption in the world mm -hmm. that we're facing? But in terms of our relationship to Hashem, is that also a disruption, or is that just right. how? Yeah. So in a way, it's like. I think part of the point is saying like the, you know, the, the image of the ideal in a way, you know, it's not the libertarian image of like, oh, actually we're all unfettered, untied. We're not responsible to anyone except for just what we want, right? That's the libertarian vision of freedom. Whereas mm -hmm. God is saying, no, actually what it means to end exploitation is to realize the true relationships that we have, which is one of being a slave to God. But being a slave to, it's not then that you're just free just to do whatever you want, but rather you are freed to have to rediscover your true responsibilities, right? Yeah. Not to take liberties with somebody else, but rather discover your primary responsibility to live up to God's ideal image of us, which is right. to become, which is, be, you know, to fulfill, you know, to, to bring justice to the world, to be a light to the nations, right? Like, you know, the, the, what it means to be free is to mean to be freed to become better, not to be free to do whatever. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that, I think that really heightens something very important. Thanks for asking that, Shish. Um, okay. To, uh, to the, the, the nitty gritty, uh, details, I guess, um, we'll have a Parsha chat Thursday. We'll be looking at Parsha's Bayikra. I hope to see you there at seven o'clock. Uh, Shabbos services, please sign up. Shabbos Zachor this weekend. So um, you, we all need to, uh, you know, talk about one of our responsibilities, which is to extirpate evil from the earth, to get, you know, to remember the cruelty of Amalek and to get rid of all, and to get rid of all cruelty. Again, relevant to what we're talking about. Shemitah and Yovel are teaching us to undo the Amalek inside of us, to get rid of exploitation and cruelty. Uh, so we have to uh, hear the the special Zachor Maftir. Um, so make sure to come to shul to sign up to come to shul um and we will be having our special pre-purim class on um next monday evening which will be about benaha fochu the topsy-turvy nature of purim it's a, nice, it'll be a fun class i mean it'll be meaningful but it'll, you know we'll take a quick break from shemitah yovel uh and then purim is uh 16th and 17th so we'll be having mcgill reading uh, in the evening, and then afterwards we'll have uh, some brews and some hot dogs around a fire in the backyard if you can stay afterwards. And then in the morning, after the morning, Megillah reading. Um, for those who feel comfortable, there will be a small uh, suda downstairs. Um, we'll get you just uh, just drunk enough to go to work. So, um, but also just uh, always worth saying, um, drinking on Purim is only meaningful and only important insofar as it adds to your freedom and it adds to your joy. It's not a responsibility in its own right. If doing other things like dancing, singing, napping, whatever gets you to that place, that's also completely legitimate. Rambam says, you're all, you know, halakhically you fulfilled your Purim obligations if you fall asleep. So if you like napping, you're in a world, and you know, like Freud says, right? Which opposites can be true at the same time. So, Vinafoku. Point is, again, is that no one should ever feel pressured to drink any day, but especially on forum. Um, drink if it helps you, not if you, not if it hinders you. Um, yeah. So, um, happy almost forum. Uh, Shavuot Tov, and uh, thanks for thanks. I think thanks for thanks for being on this. Uh, you know, today's class was it was, it was intense. It was a lot, and I hope there's something to chew on. I hope there's something to think about. 
it's not simple stuff. Um, I think it lands us in this very complex place of what it means to hold at the same time, uh, to live within the constraints of real world, but also to try to, at the same time, hold the vision of how else the world can be and to keep on striving for that. May we all strive. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh.